Hello and welcome to the I Can Do podcast with Benjamin Lee. We're here to talk about tips and strategies to have an I Can Do mindset when it comes to faith, family, fitness, and food. Let's go. Here's your host, Benjamin Lee. Hello and welcome to another episode of I Can Do. I am Benjamin Lee. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today we have another special guest on the show, Anna LeBaron. My wife Nikki and I and Josh, my son, met Anna last year at a book launch for best-selling author Kendra Hall and her book, Stories That Stick. That's a great book to have as well. And we'll talk a little bit about how Anna and my family met at that particular book launch uh, in the show. Anna quit her 17-year career launching cargo aircraft for the automotive industry to launch books full-time for the publishing industry. Anna knows how to help launch books. She does a great job. She began book launching five years ago. Since then, she has launched over 70 books, including eight New York Times bestsellers, which include titles like Of Mess and Moxie, Girl, Wash Your Face, Girl, Stop Apologizing, and many more. In her spare time, she is a public speaker. She shares her inspirational story of escaping a cult, healing, and creating a life that she is proud of. Her book, The Polygamous Daughter, a memoir, has all of her details, and we will talk a great deal about that in this particular show, about her childhood and also about her book. She speaks at writers' conferences and retreats about book launching and other topics. Anna coaches others on harnessing the power of social media and building an authentic platform so they can reach those they are called to serve. The title of this show is called Start Walking. This is what Anna wrote when she signed my copy of her book after all of us went out for dinner last year. So you'll find out the meaning of that phrase, start walking, in the show. Thank you for listening. Here we go. Anna, how are you doing? I am doing very good. It's nice to uh, talk to you again. And um, I'm hoping that uh, we can say a few things that might be helpful to some of your listeners. Absolutely. Yes. I definitely want to get into how we met last year and some of the other conversations that we've had as well moving along. Uh, I wanted to first begin, but just by saying thank you for giving me this time. You posted something on Instagram and I jumped at it and here we are. So I really appreciate your time. And I wanted to ask you too, uh, how have you been doing with uh, the coronavirus? Everybody obviously has been quarantined. Um, How has your life been going so far? Well, I have been working from home probably since 2013 or 14. Um, and then, uh, so none of that is different for me. Um, I, I, I stay at home. The, the thing that has impacted me is um, I'm a very extroverted person and I enjoy talking to people and seeing people and meeting people, as you know. Mm-hmm. And so all my speaking events canceled um, which I love to do because part of my work is as a speaker and, um, and I go and do some teaching at events and stuff that all of that canceled. Um, I launch books for a living. That's part of my work as well. And those, uh, authors that were going to be coming to the Dallas area, 
I probably had four, five, or six of them that I'd been working with that were going to do um, book events here in the Dallas area. And um, that's where you and I met the first time was one of at, at one of my author events. That's right. And so um, those are very fun for me, as you know, because there you get to meet a lot of people. And uh, being my personality type, those are just my jam. I love talking to people and meeting people and helping people. And so all of that canceling has been um, oh, like such a bummer. Um, like the virus hasn't affected my life or impacted my life in a personal way. Like I, I don't know anybody personally that's been you know, affected by that. But I do know that there is a tremendous amount of suffering in the world um, and that the economic impact of the virus is has yet to we have yet to see the full impact of that and so i don't think anyone is immune which i'm using that word purposefully we're not immune to the suffering that's possible um because of that but it it hasn't it hasn't impacted my life in a way that's drastic yet um except that i don't have the socializing that i'm that I enjoy as a part of my normal life, which is why I posted on Instagram (laughs) and said, Hey, if you have a podcast (laughs) and you need a guest, you know, uh, because this is a really good outlet for me to just be able to help people, but in a different way. Um, I feel like um, my life experiences um, lend themselves to me having some things to say that would, that might be helpful to people. Um, and so that's why I wanted to, cause I don't know if you have taught or learned about the Enneagram. You know, uh, my wife, Nikki, she did share that with me. And I think we talked about that. I can't remember if we, we talked. We about briefly that. covered it. And yeah. my Enneagram is, a, I'm a two with a three wing. And so the twos are the helpers. Mm. And so I just thought, you know what, if people have a podcast, they need guests and I have time to do things like this now. So this is how I'll help people (laughs) instead of showing up in person and chatting with people. Well, I I really appreciate it. And uh, I'm pretty sure I did the test uh, because Nikki was sharing that with me and I can't remember, I can't remember what my numbers are or were, but Uh Yeah, I like to help a lot of people too. And I think I'm more of a extrovert as well. And I was thinking about that. You mentioned a lot of things that I want to eventually talk about. We met, as you had mentioned last year at one of the book launchings. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. That's what was taking place there with uh, Kendra Hall's book, Mm -hmm. Make It Stick. No, Stories That Stick. Stories That Stick. I'm sorry. Yeah, Yeah. Stories That Stick. Nikki had been a part of a group, and I believe she heard Kendra Hall earlier that year at her 31 Products convention. I believe mm-hmm. that's how we first heard about her. Right. So I had not, I was not familiar with the book, and I want to say, I think it was on a Thursday mm-hmm. that we went over there. So I was already pretty tired. I was at the, the building working, but she wanted to go over there. I'd never done anything like that. And I was thinking about that, just kind of preparing for this show. The three of us, me, Nikki, my son, Joshua, we were there. 
And I can't remember. I think, did we come up to you? Did I come up to you and just introduce myself? I'm trying to remember how that first started. <laughs> I can't remember. But I am used to um, going to these events where I helped the author that and launched their book, which I helped Kendra do her. Um, it was her Kendra's publisher that hired me. But in, in, the, in that time, I was able to coach Kendra on what to do while she, her book was launching and all that. And so I wanted to get to meet Kendra. But when I'm at these events where um, when I'm launching a book for an author, the, the people that are participating in that book launch are in a Facebook group together. And so everybody kind of meets online and they're, they get to know each other online. And so when I go to the events, I love to just introduce myself to people because um, they probably know who I am if they're, if they're in that group. Um, they know that I've been the one like telling them what to do and how to do it and all that. And so I just go around introducing myself and trying to find the people that were part of the group so that we can get to know each other in real life, as they say, IRL. Yeah, no, that was fantastic. And I remember um, that was just a new experience for, for me. And I believe that was a new experience for Nikki. So I know we started talking and there's a funny story I've shared with with uh, some other people. And I want to definitely talk about your book and your story. And and I think it's just a powerful story. But when we started talking, I can't remember how, how, how long we actually talked, but eventually I started learning more about you and you had mentioned that you had written a book, Mm -hmm. uh, the polygamous daughter, uh, Mm -hmm. which is a fantastic book. And I have it, I have it next to me right here. And I think I had shared with you that I have uh, put together some books and it was Mm -hmm. just, it was funny to me. It was a little bit embarrassing, but it's funny now because when I looked your book up, you had like over 600 Amazon reviews. I was like, man, this is amazing. And then you said, well, have you, you know, you know, where are your books and things like that? And so you looked up one of my books and uh, you said, oh, you have a review on it. That's fantastic. And then you clicked on the review and it said Benjamin Lee. And it was my own review. And so that was a little bit uh, embarrassing, but <laughs> you were very gracious with me, and I appreciate that. And uh, I eventually took it off. So, but that was something that really stuck out with me. But when I heard or lo- learned more about your story and the book that you had written, I bought it that night while I was talking to you. I got on my phone, and I bought your book while I was talking to you. Did you really see? Yeah. I didn't know you bought it. Yeah, I didn't yeah. know. You- well, thank you. <laughs> there it is. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. That, that meant a lot to me. And we'll talk about uh, the dinner later on, too. Uh, just that time you gave uh, to Nikki and I, that meant a lot to me as well. So I remember asking you after I read the book, I wanted to talk to you more. Could we get together for dinner? The three of us get together for dinner. You said yes. So it took me about three weeks to, to read the book. And I reached out to you and you were true to your word. We got together and, uh, went over to, uh, BJ's restaurant. And, uh, I think we were there for about three hours. Like I said, I have a lot of words. <laughs> <laughs> I, I ate a whole pizza there. So that gave me some time to kind of digest that, but I really do like talking to you. And if you can, I'd love for you to share your story, the book and, and, and just how the book got started by talking a little bit about your past uh, to, uh, to the audience. Yeah. So I got started in book launching when my agent, because, you know, I wrote a memoir. The Polygamous Daughter is a memoir. And so uh, people that write memoirs usually 
don't have, haven't, haven't, haven't had an easy life. And so uh, people with an easy life don't usually get contracted to write memoirs. Gotcha. Um, so my agent, when I got, uh, when she signed a contract with me to agent me, she said, Anna, uh, authors have to sell their own books. And so I had a 17 year career in sales and marketing of a different thing. So I was like, okay, well I can learn how to sell books. Um, yeah. like I can sell this other thing. I can sell books. So I was learning how to sell books and that's how I got into book launching, which is how we met through Kendra Hall. Right. Um, but she had said on authors have to sell their own books. So, um, that's how I got into this business that I'm in now. But, um, the, book that I wrote, um, talks about and tells the story of my life, um, growing up in a violent polygamist cult. Um, my father was known as the Mormon Manson because he would have people killed that would leave his cult and also other rival polygamist cult leaders. So I did not know that those things were happening as a child um, because children weren't told, you know, the adult stuff that was swirling around us. Um, uh, but I was three years old when the first hit was ordered um, on my father's own brother. Wow. And um, so that hit was carried out when I was three years old. It was a modern day Cain and Abel story with my father being the modern day Cain. And um, so we began as a child living our life uh, on the run from the law because now my father was wanted and the people that had carried out his order were also wanted. And that began a whole string of events and more hits being ordered and more violence. Um, eventually he was responsible for the deaths of 28 people confirmed and more than 38, if depending on which investigator is counting. And a lot of investigators have done some counting. And so we lived our life on the run from the law. So we had no stability, no um, security. Um, I didn't even know my own father until um, I was nine years old when I met him for the first time. And I have two memories of interacting with him one-on-one, which I talk about in the book, me making him coffee down in Mexico. That was one of the big stories. That was one, you know, where, um, uh, so I, I grew up essentially fatherless, um, which, um, has an impact, had an impact on my spiritual life as well. Because when you grow up fatherless, you don't have a grid for what to make of a relationship with a heavenly father if you were not well fathered as a child. And so that, that all is part of my story that I talk about in the book. And, um, so all of those things happened and, um, you know, growing up, we lived in abject poverty because my father didn't work. He, he was the cult leader. So he depended on the followers to support him. So my mother and all his, he had 13 wives and fathered more than 50 children wow. and never worked an actual wow. job in wow. his life. So was it just in the, the offerings that people made then uh-huh. that supported him through the yeah. church? Uh-huh. 
but none of that went to the kids. Like we, we weren't supported. The wives went on welfare and we, we dumpster dived for food, dumpster dived in the Goodwill boxes for clothes. Yeah. That was one of the most, um, I think that was a powerful, just the imagery, just trying to imagine that, you know, getting the clothes, not getting caught, uh, mm-hmm. getting food. Yeah. And you even mentioned, um, I think it was in Colorado, if I remember correctly, the, the type of hard labor that you guys were. were right. Doing. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Our, our family did a lot of the supporting of themselves through um, a used appliance business that they ran. Um, there were different factions of my father's cult all over the Southwest United States, including um, Houston, Dallas, Denver, uh, Phoenix, California, and some in Mexico. So we were spread out all over and just about everybody ran a used appliance business in whatever city they were in. And so in Denver, they had this huge warehouse that, um, you know, it was just a sweatshop really. And kids, you know, as young as nine, you know, boys, sometimes even younger, just taken out of school. And then they would work 12 hour days, um, eating nothing but you know, mashed beans on moldy, old, stale bread. That's what they would feed us. And so, um, and that is if we had that, not, we didn't always have that. And so, um, sometimes, you know, like I said, we dumpster dived for food. So like my first taste of a Yoplait yogurt from the dumpster, uh, you know, because Grocery stores that have uh, things that go out of date, they can't sell them in the store, so they just throw them away. Um, And now they do it differently, I think. Um, (laughs) But, you know, that was was part of how we nourished our bodies was when we would find those uh, stale or old discarded dairy products and vegetables and fruits that... They couldn't be sold in stores. So that was a supplement to the, the things that my mom was able to buy. But like when she would go to the grocery the store, um, like she didn't go to the regular grocery store and buy bread. Um, you know, the, the stores like the Mrs. Baird store <laughs> you know, where they sell day old bread yeah. and you get it at half price. And then it's two day old bread and it's like lower price even. Yeah. And then it's three day old bread. And then you buy it, you know, for just very pennies on the dollar, you know, and then after they don't, they can't sell it anymore. They slit the top of the bag open and they put it in these garbage bags and they sell it like for a garbage bag full for $5 wow. and it's intended as animal feed. Are you serious? I, had, I did not know that. And um, that's what my mom would buy to feed because she had 12 children of her own. Plus wow. um, one of my dad's wives went to prison for killing somebody. Um, that he ordered. Mm. And so my mom was raising her younger children as well. And then one of my dad's wives died of cancer. And so she was raising a couple of her children as well. So my mom had a lot of mouths to feed and that's how she did it. Not a lot of money. Yeah. Not a lot of money. It's interesting. Uh, and I appreciate you sharing that. I can, I'm sure that maybe I'm sure that's still hard for you. I know you've talked about the story quite a bit in the book and uh, different podcasts and interviews and things like that. I 
had somebody on my last episode and his father wasn't really around too much, obviously for a lot of different reasons. Uh, my father growing up, uh, and obviously again, for a lot of different reasons, he wasn't around, he wasn't around that much either. And I want to say you guys, were you guys on <clears throat> government assistance or like public aid for a while? Yeah. So my mom was on welfare um, and we got free lunches at school. So going to school and having that lunch when we were still enrolled in school, because we weren't always enrolled in school, but a lot of times we were. Yeah. I mean, those school lunches that other kids complain about were like heaven. Like, I bet. It was a feast, um, especially getting milk that was fresh and whole milk. Oh, my gosh. Because um, <laughs> when you're on government welfare back in the day, you got powdered milk. Yeah, we were on public aid. Oh. I, like, the, the government cheese, the block cheese. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It took about 30 minutes to make a grilled cheese sandwich. Yes. We were pretty good after you got it all melted, but it was not the the best food. Yeah, so the 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 powdered milk, my mom would water it down so that it would stretch further, which meant you were drinking basically white water. It was just gross. Wow. So when yeah. you got to go to school and have whole milk from a little carton, oh my gosh. So like in school, <laughs> I was a I loved school. School was a refuge and a respite for me, loved school, you know, just having that, um, environment that was, that felt safe and felt predictable and routine. And, you know, the teachers were kind you know, um, my life at home wasn't that way. So I loved school and I, um, did everything my teachers wanted. I was just a model student. I got, you know, student of the month, basically, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Those were things I aspired to and I did all my schoolwork. And so the only time I really got in trouble at school was one time you weren't allowed in the cafeteria. You weren't allowed to trade food with kids. You had yeah. to like eat your own lunch. Mm-hmm. And there was a girl who was going to throw away a carton of milk that had not been opened. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, I was like, <laughs> Oh no, that won't work. That won't do at all. And I'm yeah. third grade, you know, And she's going to throw away a carton of milk. Like this was such a luxury to me that I just couldn't imagine letting her do that. So I swapped Mm -hmm. my empty carton for her full one. And my teacher saw it and they had to sit me out at the other table for the troublemakers. And and I was just a hungry kid, you know. Did they know know anything about your background? Mm Mm-mm. I actually got to connect with my teacher from third grade that um that was part of that time of my life when I was on my book tour oh really and I got to I went back to Denver and uh she she was still there and still alive and we she came to my book signing and we got to see each other for the first time in decades and um it was just we both were crying and so at that book signing I read the chapter in the book that I what I wrote about her Wow! Um, what an impact she had on my life, and so I read that chapter at the book signing. Everybody was crying. We were all crying. It was crazy. And then the next morning, me and her had breakfast, and we went to the school where and took pictures at the school. And it was just such a sweet time to get to reconnect with her. And I asked her, "Did you have any clue that anything was wrong or going on behind the scenes?" And she said, "Absolutely not." And so let me just back up a little bit and say. 
um, there's been a whole stack of books written about my family, like because my dad was so notorious. And there's been a made-for-TV movie about him that came out on CBS in 1993. You can watch it in its entirety on YouTube. Um, it's called Prophet of Evil. Mm. And I don't recommend it for kids at all. It's very frightening. It's it's very um, disturbing. And so I wouldn't recommend it for uh, children or anybody that is easily triggered by violence. Um, How do you pronounce your dad's name? Everill? Is that correct? Herbal. Herbal. Herbal LeBaron. It's evil with an R. I know. <laughs> so, um, so I'm sure that the title of that TV movie, Make Prophet of Evil, was a play on his work. On his word. Name. So there's been a lot of books written about my dad, a lot of media coverage. He has his own Wikipedia page, the whole thing. Um, but none of the books written had been written from the perspective of a child. And that was my goal in writing my book, because I felt like that voice was missing from this whole uh, conversation about our family and our family history is what impact did this have on the children? And so when I wrote the book, um, I put basically I put blinders on on the side and said, I want my reader to experience my life through my eyes through this lens. And, you know, they can go online and read all these other books about all this stuff happening with the adults. Um, so unless I knew it, my reader didn't know. There were a few times when I said, you know, what I didn't know at the time, mm-hmm. just to give context to the reader. And so I break from that just a, a few times in the book. But I was very judicious in what I, how I did that. Right. Because I wanted the reader to experience my life through my eyes. Yeah. So when I was seven years old, um, they saw my life through a seven, the f- lens of a seven-year-old. And then as a teenager and running away from home and what that felt like and looked like. Mm-hmm. And so in the book, I, I don't find out about my family's violent history until after I'm out of the cult. Wow. When I'm, I think I was 15 years old when I was, when I read that book that had been written about my father Yeah, and all of this stuff became, I became aware of the violent history of the fam, my family of origin. Yeah. And that's when my reader became aware of the violent history of my family of origin. And so, um, so that, that was how I wrote the book and why I did it from that perspective because the kids didn't know when we were down in Mexico, um, I was living with people who were in hiding from the law. That's why our homes were raided by the FBI and the Mexican police. I didn't, I didn't know why these things were happening. We were taught that it was because we were being persecuted because we were God's chosen people. (laughs) And so it was very uh, traumatic and traumatizing as a teenager after leaving the cult to find out these things about people that I loved and cared about that were dead. Yeah. Not because they just went away and never came back. Uh, they were dead and gone. And so those um, losses that I experienced, you know, you when I ran away from home, I lost my family, you know. And then to 
pile on top of that loss, now learning all of these things about my family of origin, I, I didn't know. We didn't know. Yeah. So when I was in Mexico, one of the stories that I didn't tell in the book that I wish, wish, <laughs> I remembered to tell it in the, when, before the book was published. Yeah. Um, and also I'll tell it now. You do tell I was 10 years old because remember I had my birthday in Mexico on the, in the beach house and my sister made me a pancake cake of 10 stacks of pancakes because we didn't have an oven. <laughs> so I was about 10. Um, oh, yeah. And the, I got a hold of a copy of U.S. News and World Report um, when the cover and the whole art, the whole magazine was devoted to um, the events in Jonestown in Ghana where the man had all these people drink that Kool-Aid. That's where we get the phrase, don't drink the Kool-Aid, you know? Um, and I was reading about these events and I'm 10, so I can read. So I'm reading this magazine and looking at these very disturbing photographs of the people dead. Um, and thinking to myself, man, these poor people in this cult, you know, not understanding that, I am in a cult. Yeah, I have no idea. And it's equally as violent and disturbing. Yeah. Wow. Not knowing. That's 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 powerful. I appreciate you sharing that. That's um, you know, that's just an amazing thing to think about for for so long. The children not having even that understanding and how things were just hidden for so long. Let me ask you two questions. The first part is. I know, I believe you said, you know, you really only had about three interactions with your father. What is the last thing you remember with the last interaction with your father? And then the second part is uh, you ran away when you were 13. And uh, when you signed my book, which I really appreciate it, you used the phrase, start walking. What's the significance of that phrase? So what, if you can help us out with those two questions. Yeah. So I... Um, met my father when I was nine in Mexico. He, um, like, I might have, like, been in the same house as him prior to that, but because he came and went in the middle of the night, and when he was in the home, he would be sequestered in a back bedroom that had the windows covered with sheets so that people couldn't see in. Um, so he came and went in the middle of the night, and we never saw him. So it was very um, unusual that when I was in Mexico and we were like, we knew he was coming to the house. Um, so that was unusual. And so I met him when I was nine, we had those interactions where I made him coffee that night. And then one time he took me to go preaching or proselytizing, you know, yeah. on one of his trips. And those are just, those are it. Um, after that, we never saw him again. And I mean, we talked about him. I knew he was there. I knew he was wherever. And, and then he got arrested when I was 11. So I met him when I was nine and he got arrested when I was 11 and tried convicted and sentenced to life in prison. Um, even though he'd never pulled the trigger on anyone, he was sentenced to life, which was appropriate. Absolutely. Um, and so he, he was arrested and put in prison when I was 11 and then we would pray every night. We would get down on our knees and pray for his release from prison. Wow. Because we didn't know. Yeah, that's all. That's you know? all you mm -hmm. And so I was 
um, because I worked in our family appliance business, mm-hmm. um, when we moved to Houston, um, I would sometimes answer the phone and take calls from people who wanted to sell their used appliances. Um, you know, cause if your washer breaks, you don't, and you buy a new one, what are you going to do with the old one? You know, we would pick them up, um, pay a couple of, you know, five, 20 bucks or whatever, and then use them for parts or rebuild them and sell them. So I would answer those calls. I'm 10, 11 years old, answering the phone, taking all the information on this little card that we had printed. And then I would map it out like where the pickup driver was going to go for that day. I would map out their route for them using maps. Go, you remember those big maps? (laughs) We now have GPS, but it used to be back in the day for all your listeners that, you know, are younger Back yeah. in the day, you had a book That's that right. had the maps in them, and each each page was a grid on on this wall, this map that would cover a wall. Yeah, and you could see every street in the city of Houston on the wall. And so we would map out. I would map out for the driver without having to backtrack at all because you wanted to save on gas and you know all that. So I would be that would be my job. Yeah. <laughs> with all the information and then find that street address in the Mapsco book and then find it on the wall and then map out for the driver where they were going to go. So I was used to answering the phone and interacting with people. I sold an, an appliance when I was like 11. That's impressive. You know, <laughs> so yeah. I've been in marketing and sales. You've been in sales for a long time. For a long time. Like, and even before that, remember in Mexico when I was nine, walking around selling cake slices. That's right. Door to door. So I've been in marketing and sales for a very long time. So this is like a good profession for me. I'm very experienced in this. <laughs> so, um, so I was, uh, I was used to answering the phone. So I was, I think 12, it was 1981. So I was 12 years old um, when the phone call came uh, and I answered the phone, but before I could say hello, and this is also um, a reflection of how old I am, because this was back in the day, again, for your young listeners, back in the day, phones were connected to the wall with a cord, you know, with a very long cord, you know, (laughs) And, and you had more than, if you had more than one phone in your house, two people could be on the same call at the same time. So my mom had answered the phone upstairs and I was downstairs, and before I could say hello, um, I overheard the caller giving my mom the news that my dad had been found dead in his prison cell. And so that was my last, you know, whatever. At his funeral, um, there was so much police protection because my dad was notorious and there were still people out there doing some of his, the things that he had ordered. And so we had, you know, police, a lot of police protection at the funeral service. Um, even though we were the ones out there doing the horrible things, it was our family out there doing these things. Um, they still protected our family during the funeral because it was him because of who he was. Yeah. Um, and so I remember standing at his casket and that like, this was my first time as a 12, I think I was 12, my first time seeing a dead person. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what that was. And 
you know, in our family, when somebody died, nobody knew about it. They would be buried in a shallow grave somewhere and you didn't talk about it and nobody knew except the people that had done it. So this was my first experience um, with seeing a person that had passed away. And I remember um, standing at his casket and observing, like I touched, you know, like I touched his skin because somebody was saying other kids were talking about it. And, you know, you were, all the kids are just milling around talking to each other, you know, and they were talking about how cold his skin was. So I went over there and I touched it because it was like, oh, this is really curious, you know? Um, So just being a curious child. um, But I, I remember seeing um, he had a suit on and a white shirt with a tie. That's what his burial clothes were. And I remember seeing around his neck, he had bruising that had been covered up with makeup. You could see the makeup covering the bruising. And um, so I have my conspiracy theories that he didn't die of heart disease, quote unquote. Yeah, I looked him up and that's what that's what it said, I think, uh, on his Wikipedia page, my, myocardial infarction. Or infra- yeah, infarction. Yeah. So if you go and you look up um, and you just type in your Google search bar, New yeah. York Times obituary. Yeah and my father's name, you can read that the guards reported that he had um, committed suicide by punching himself in the throat. Really? Wow. And um, that is not a way that people commit suicide. Oh, yeah. So I have my conspiracy theories about how he died in prison, and it was not from heart disease. Where where was he in prison? Was he in Colorado or Texas or he was I, in Salt Lake City? Salt Lake City. Okay. Yeah. What was the um the back I guess backlash or ramification even after he died? And when did you finally get to a point where you felt safe, you know, where you can you can go out, you can do your work, you have your family and you don't have to per se worry about is there still someone out there connected or someone who's trying to fulfill whatever he wanted them to do. Well, even after he died, um, when he was in prison, he left a, um, he left a long rambling book, um, probably a few inches thick of his ramblings. And that's just the best word to use for it. And in there, he had talked about all the people that had betrayed him and Mm. ordered them to be, blood atoned, which is the phrase that is part of the history of the religion that I was born into, which is fundamentalist Mormonism. Mm -hmm. And um, it's not part of the modern day Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, They disavowed polygamy in 1890. And the fundamentalist Mormons that are still practicing fundamentalist teachings um, today are very distinct and separate. So I wanted to confirm that and to clarify that for your listeners. Um, but my father practiced blood atonement, which means there are some sins that you commit that are not covered by the blood of Christ. Mm. And so you have to atone for those sins with the shedding of your own blood. And it's a, it's a kindness they're doing to you so that you can go to heaven. Because if you don't atone for those sins and you die, 
uh, you're not going to heaven. So that's how he got other people to carry out these things that he wanted. Right. Which will probably be helpful to your listeners to understand that because, um, how crazy it is it how do you get people to go and kill somebody else like right but yeah so that was um that was how we grew up and um so those were the very last memories i have of my father was you know him at his grave and me observing as a 12 year old seeing the bruising around his neck and and the makeup when you apply makeup, if you don't smooth it, you can see it. A little bit of streakiness to, you know, the foundation or whatever they used. Um, and I observed that as a 12-year-old and didn't understand what it was, didn't know. But when I read in the obituary that he, you know, quote, committed suicide by punching himself in the throat, that bruising. Um, so I don't believe he punched himself in the throat. Right. I think I believe he was taken out. Somebody got to him. Yeah. Somebody got to him. And uh, so I don't, I'm not going to comment further on that, but sure. um, those are my observations uh, yeah. about my father. And I can't remember the second question you asked me. Oh, the phrase you wrote in my book. Uh, oh, start walking. Yeah. yeah. What's the significance of that? Okay. So I had been living in Houston for a while. That's when my father passed away when I was 12. And it took a while um, for things to calm down in our cult. Just, I mean, this was in the early, very early 80s, before the internet, before Facebook, before private messaging and, you know, texting and all that, before any of that. So communication was a difficult thing and slow. So when you have people scattered around, Houston, Dallas, Phoenix, Denver, Colorado, and Mexico, and everywhere. When you have people scattered like that, and then the leader of the cult dies, um, there's a lot happening of people trying to regain power and who's going to ascend and be in control of all of that. And so as a child, I'm not aware of all those things, but it's happening. And we had been living in Denver prior to moving to Houston. And when my mom, after my father passed away, the man who kind of emerged at the top was the man who was running the Denver faction of the cult. And that that was Dan Jordan, who, uh, if you recall, I did not care for him at all because uh, he was a very despicable human being. Uh, The way he treated us was very despicable. I mean, his children love him. His children have very different memories of him than I do. And so, um, so he was probably in some regards, a good person to his children and whatever, and they can have that memory of him, but that's not my experience. And so as a 12 year old, when I find out, you know, that my dad dies and he's taking over and at 13, my mom is planning to move us from Houston to Denver. I was not interested in going. And because we had experienced in Houston, the most freedom we had ever had and the, the best life we had ever had in Houston, we got paid for our work instead of being, you know, driven like slaves. Um, in Houston, we would work regular normal hours as kids, um, and be paid $5 a week. 
um, in Houston, my mom would pay, was paid for her work. She could shop for groceries in the store. And, you know, with my $5 a week, I could save up my money and buy, go to the, I went to Marshall's and bought a pair of Gloria Vanderbilt jeans with that little white swan stitched on the pocket. Again, I'm dating myself. <laughs> That's all right. Um, but these jeans fit me and looked good. And I'm 13, you know, these yeah. things are important. So I would save up my $5 again. And I went out and bought myself a pair of Nike tennis shoes, two-tone brown with that little swoosh on the side, you know, <laughs> and I could, uh, I went to a beauty school that was near my house and had them style my hair with those Farrah Fawcett waves that mm-hmm. you know, feathers that were so popular back in the day, yeah. but it didn't work on my hair. Like I had <laughs> balls coming out of my ears instead of the feathery, you know, the beautiful feathers that she had. Um, yeah. But I thought I looked great. So that's all that mattered at that <laughs> that's time. All that that's right. That's what I was going to say. And so we would get to go to the movies. My mom would take us to the dollar movies. You know, we would get taken roller skating on Friday night and they would pay for us to go roller skating. And we got to listen to secular music and not be told it was from the devil. You know, so all of these things were part of my new life in Houston, which was like amazing like how compared to what I had experienced prior, we were living the good life, even though we were still in a cult. Yeah. And so when I found out that my mom was planning to move us back to Denver, back to Dan Jordan's, you know, slave labor situation where we wouldn't get paid for our work. Um, I didn't want anything to do with that. I was 13 And I was like, "Mm, nope, I like my jeans and my tennis shoes and roller skating and all the things that were important to a 13-year-old and the treatment that we had had in Denver caused me to go, you know what, I don't. So here's the thing. I wasn't running away from a cult. I didn't even know I was in a cult. You didn't know you were part of it, yeah. I just knew life in Houston was way better than life in Denver. Yeah. And, and my sister yeah. and her husband were the ones in charge of the Houston faction. So I called my sister. She was grown. She was married, had five children of her own at the time. Um, I said, I don't want to go to Denver. Mm-hmm. And she said to me, start walking. Start walking. And uh, if I remember correctly, was it a, you went to a hotel, was it a uh, La Quinta Inn? Uh, La Quinta. That- yeah. La Quinta. So, she, I started walking. I walked out of my house with just the clothes on my back. I had my Gloria Vanderbilt jeans on. You know that. <laughs> um, this and, was a part of the book, too, where I got nervous, where yeah. you were in the hotel for three days, or and your mom was yeah. looking for you. Yeah. So now they're trying to find you, mm-hmm. and, you know, you were there by yourself, I believe, because your sister. I was there by myself um, for the first part of it, and then I had another sister um, that had also run away, but we didn't plan this together. Like we didn't talk to each other about it. I did my thing. She did her thing. And eventually my sis, my, my other sister, a little bit older than me was brought to the hotel as well. And then I had like somebody to be there with me. Um, Mm -hmm. and so we were, we were in hiding until they knew for sure that my mom had left. So imagine, imagine this, you're a parent 
and your child runs away and you pack up your house and move to a different state, not knowing where your children are. Wow. That was the the power that Dan Jordan had over her. Yes. Wow. And the power of the cult, the brainwashing, the mind control that was very, very evident in my mom's choices. You do a lot of coaching and you launch books. I know you've launched over 70 books Mm -hmm. and at least of them have made the New York Times bestseller list. (laughs) Well, that leads me to to a couple other questions Uh, real quickly here. We could do like a rapid fire Mm -hmm. if you like. I know you started reading at a very young age. Mm -hmm. I think in in our first grade, your Mm -hmm. sister shared some things with you. Yes. Uh, What books have you read or have you read some books since you've been quarantined? If, If so, what books might those be? The book that I'm reading right now um, is uh, Beth Moore's book called Chasing Vines. It's her newest book. And it, there's a chapter about soil and roots um, because she bases that book on the verses in the Bible that talk about, I am the vine, you are the branches, you know, apart from me, you know, so, uh, so that's what the basis of the book is called is for, um, and she has, she just studies, it's called viticulture and the how to grow grapes. Mm. And um, so she studied this and the whole book is talking about um, her, what she's learned about how um, people, I don't know what people are called that are, that grow grapes, um, but the, what they do and how they tend the vines so that they can uh, grow fruit, so they can become fruitful, um, is been so instructive during this time. Mm-hmm. The chapters on soil and the chapter on roots. Um, mm-hmm. She talks about, like, without even know, without knowing that this was coming. She's talking about what to do when when you're in a situation where they're where catastrophic what to do, how to survive, how to uh, grow, and how to become fruitful, even after you experience um, the, the pruning of your life, where, where everything is cut back to the nub, mm-hmm. and that, um, that the gardeners only do that, they only prune back because they want that vine to be more fruitful. Mm-hmm. And so she's like talking about if you find yourself in a season of cutting back and of being pruned. And if this is not a season of pruning and cutting back, I don't know what is. So that's a book that, um, that I would just highly recommend. And then here's another one that I have right next to me. It's called, because yeah. um, a lot of times in our Christian walk, you know, people, if you're struggling people will give you really bad advice and say, just pray harder, pray more, read your Bible more, try harder to be a good Christian. And here is what the subtitle of the book is. A fresh approach to move us out of anxiety, stress, and survival mode and into a life of connection and joy. And as somebody who has experienced trauma, um, Trying harder is a natural uh, expression of that. Like, if I just do more or do this, I can 
prevent bad things from happening to me. If I just work harder and work more and do more than the next person, you know, I can help insulate myself from these bad things happening. And her premise of try softer, um, and what she's talking about is trying softer with yourself, being softer with yourself. Because I think I am my worst critic and I'm harder on myself than I am with anybody. Like I can give people the benefit of the doubt all the time, like with, with ease. And yet with myself, it's like, I'm, I'm very hard on myself. And, and so just being more kind and more tender with that inner child that's still inside of me that wants to hoard pencils Mm -hmm. and just acknowledging that that child and that person still exists inside of me and being sweet and kind to her and saying, yeah, we're in a time of unease and uncertainty. And so that little child's voice still is there. Like the little boy inside of you that took that knife and went screaming at your father, you know, he's still there. And just being kind to that child, this, I call it reparenting my inner child because I'm now a parent. And I know that when my child was afraid, because my kids are all grown now, but when they were little and they were afraid, all they needed was for me to take them in my arms and comfort them with my very presence. Mm-hmm. That's all I needed yeah. for the world yeah. to be made right again. And yeah, so, that's yeah. so now that's when that little seven-year-old girl that needed pencils to comfort her, um, kind of like starts to go, Hey, I'm here. You know, I'm very sweet to that girl. You know, I mm-hmm. know what she needed more than mm-hmm. anyone else. It's like, yeah. you know what? There's plenty of pencils, honey. There's a lot of pencils and we'll never run out. Yeah. And that goes back, I think to just, um, you know, I look at Joshua, how, you know, he trusts, he trusts me and Nikki and he wants to be around us. And, you know, one thing I do talk about and teach a lot is, because moments like this, I think about even Acts chapter 12, where Peter was in prison, and it says at the church, they were praying fervently. And so there, there seemed to be just the elevation of their prayers and the intensity of their prayer, praying fervently. And that sometimes can can be not necessarily lost, but kind of can kind of be downgraded if not careful, where in moments like this, especially being home, at least for me, um, you know, I love, I love to eat. I love sweets. Uh, and it's so much easier now to, you know, you can turn to food, you can turn to TV, mm-hmm. uh, and those things, you know, there's nothing wrong doing things like that, obviously, but, but making sure that we're, that we're turning to God. And I can't remember what book it was. Um, but it's kind of become my phrase tag, uh, time alone with God. Mm-hmm. And so we try to emphasize that a lot where, you know, we are in his word and going to him in prayer, but ultimately, you know, we have to trust in him and he's going to see us through. And, and, um, and again, you know, you see this, you know, throughout, throughout the scriptures, you know, people are going to go through difficult days. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and I think this has forced a lot of us to, you know, to slow down. It's been amazing going out to the neighborhood and seeing all the families outside. I've seen dogs in the backyard. Mm-hmm. Now, their owners look like, right? Because they're in the backyard with them, you know, mm-hmm. so just you know, all of this, 
has forced us to really kind of think about some things more. I was going to ask you, I know you do a lot with social media. And as you launch these books, that's a big part of what you're doing. How do you think social media might change as a result of what's going on with the coronavirus? Um, you think things might become better as a result or worse, like moving forward? Because there's, you know, Facebook has, I think, implemented some new things where people eventually will be able to watch things from Facebook even without being on Facebook. And so there, there's new things that are being created. Zoom now has all of this attention. Um, what do you think might come out from from all of this once things quote unquote, get back to normal? Well, I don't know if we have a normal to get back to. I don't know if that's going to be a thing. I think we're going to create the new normal and that we're all walking into what's going to be a new normal and that we are living in historic times. So um, here's another book. It's called Your Story Matters. This one <laughs> just barely launched. Um, okay. This lady, uh, Leslie Fields, has been leading uh, groups through um, uh, seminars and uh, workshops about how to write their story. And so I, I would say that um, anybody listening to this, um, yes, we're going to become, our, our whole country and way of life is going to be different as a result of this. And I think a lot of it will go more online. Um, and the ways that we interact, um, like I didn't FaceTime with people very often before this. I think FaceTime is going to become a more part of my life just because it's like, oh, yeah, it's kind of awesome to see somebody's face when you're talking to them instead of just calling on the phone, you know. Um, so so those are all things that are going to happen. But what's, I think, more important and that will benefit people in in times to come is if people right now can write down what's happening because we are living in historic times and we talk about the Great Depression now, and this was like a hundred years ago, right? We still talk about the Great Depression and the effect that it had on people. And we've all seen how the Great Depression affected people's lives and those, the ways that it expanded that it affected their life are still part of their life today. That trauma still expresses itself in their life through hoarding and through this and that and the other, you know, like, so what's going to come out of this time, we're going to be the ones that people are talking about a hundred years from now that lived through the events of 2020. And so if you don't tell your story, the way you are experiencing it, somebody's going to tell it for you and they're going to talk about you. And what do you want them saying about you a hundred years from now? And if you write down your story and the things that you did during this time period, um, you get to tell your own story and you get to write the narrative of what's happening. And so that's what I'm hoping that people will take away from these experiences is that you are in a time where you get to craft the narrative of how you responded to this, how you reacted to this, and whether this um, this stress on your life called out uh, darker parts of you, or whether it called out the the good or the better parts of you. Um, who are you? Like who you are is going to evidence itself. 
and good, the good people need to be doing the good things, um, and helping their neighbors, um, finding ways to impact the world with the gifts, talents, abilities that they have in their own small way, because these stories are being written right now. Mm-hmm. They're being told and you, you hear about them on, you know, you, you see it on social media. And so talking about the ways that human people are coming alongside of and helping other human beings in this mm-hmm. time of stress is, is what is going to be the, the hallmark of what's happening in the world today. Like, yeah. Even after the events of 9-11, as horrifying as those events were, um, people still talk about the good ways that um, the stories that come out of that, how people and human beings helped other human beings in small ways, in big ways, we still talk about those stories today. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I'm really hoping is that pe- everybody listening will f- say, how can I impact the world for good? Mm-hmm. I mean, even as small a thing as um, I, I read that parents are taking their children on walks around the neighborhood and that other families have put bears in the windows of their home so that mm-hmm. children can count the bears while they're on their walk. You know? Yeah. We've been doing something like that in the neighborhood where um, I think it, I can't remember, but uh, just putting different things in. And so you can, you know, try to find as many as you can mm-hmm. as you're going out there. Yeah. And so I mean, the just the, the, the mailboxes and things like that. Talk. Yeah. All of those things. Like those are small ways that if that's all you can do right now because of your you're suffering too much like but there are ways that every one of us no matter how much um you can affect the lives of others for good even in small ways and those are the stories that are going to be told for generations to come and that yeah. so so i'm saying your story matters um, this, yeah. this book will help you write your story. Um, it will help you find out what are the nuggets that need to be told. Because Is that really emphasizing someone to write a book or just the idea of, just you know, a, of putting, putting your life story on paper? Oh, okay. Got because it. your story matters. Every yeah. single person's story matters. Not every story is going to get published by a traditional publisher, a lot of people, self-publishing is very accessible to just about every person now. And so mm-hmm. even if you just wanted to uh, put your book on Amazon so you could print a copy of it for your own children, you telling, you telling your stories um, for Josh would be uh, incredibly valuable to him as a grown adult. Him knowing your stories. So even if you were to type them out, just basic and take it to Kinko's, print it out, bind it and have that one copy of your story that, that he can read when he becomes an adult and he can understand the narrative of your life and where you came from and how you've overcome and everything that you've overcome to get to where you are today um, mm-hmm. would be so beneficial to him as a grown person, 
because the way you parent him is absolutely affected by the way you were parented. And for him to understand some things, like I know that I wasn't a perfect parent. Like I have told my kids, if you go to therapy, I'll pay for it because they're all grown out. And I'm like, I'll still pay for it. If you go to therapy, I'll pay for it because I know I messed them up in some ways because of my own parenting. Um, How I was parented affected how I parented. But me writing this book has helped my children understand the, the mistakes that I made in my parenting and has given them a lot of, a lot more um, tenderness towards me and a lot more forgiveness and a lot more grace for all the ways that I messed them up as a mother. Because mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> I had bad days parenting because I didn't do it perfect. Well, that's, you know, I saw that. I'm, I was thankful I was able to talk to my dad uh, and get a lot of things off his chest. But no, I, I like that idea. Your story matters. I just published a couple of um, one journal, like a nighttime journal, because there is so much anxiety. And I based that off of First uh, Peter 5, 7. Uh, where people can read a scripture, they can write it out, they can write their fears out, they can write their prayers out. I know you've done, I think, uh, prayer journals, and I, I've been doing that since 2016. Someone mentioned that to me, and so that's kind of how I, I do my tag, my time alone with God, to write things out like that. But I think that's a great idea. Kindle Direct Publishing is a great way to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if someone or when someone uh, writes their book, uh, or if I write my book, uh, Benjamin Lee's Coronavirus, uh, <laughs> but I come to Anna LeBaron and say, okay, how can how might you be able to help me to to get this out into the world? Because that's what you do, right? Right. Um, gonna, a publishing company or someone's going to come. You're going to provide for them coaching mm-hmm. uh, and you know getting that book or getting that promotion out there. Mm-hmm. So I do the coaching. So it helps if I can begin coaching as soon as possible. If you know you're going to publish a book, whether you're going to self-publish or traditionally publish, um, the the marketing of a book is um, again the author's job. No matter that's how we started this whole thing was my agent <laughs> saying, "Anna, authors have to sell their own books." Um, so I, I would coach you and tell you you have to sell your own book, um, huh. even if you have a traditional publisher. Um, so. Launching a book for a traditionally published book is different than for a self-published book. So depending on the the way you were planning to uh, put that book out in the world would be the kind of coaching that I would provide. And so it, it, it's different. Um, but the bottom line is um, if you're going to write a book that you believe is a message for more than just your family and your immediate, you know, friends, you know, uh, that would probably be interested in knowing if you wrote anything bad about them, you know, so they might buy your book just for that. <laughs> so, um, so your immediate family and friends, you know, would buy your book just, you know, to support you. And because they want to know if you said anything about them. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want someone to buy their, buy your book, write about them. <laughs> so, uh, so that's different. Um, the majority of published books never sell more than a thousand copies. And so, you know, putting a book out there in the world, it, however many people that you have influence and reach to is how well your book is going to sell. 
And so if you have a message that you believe is um, for more than just your immediate family and friends and maybe, you know, your, your congregation, let's just say, if you believe that message is for more than that, then you're going to need a strategy for how to reach beyond the influence that you have right now. And so the things that I talk about and the ways that I instruct people and coach them is how to become a uh, influencer on social media. And so being, having influence on social media is, um, is a way to reach more people than are part of your immediate circle. Gotcha. Yeah. If people wanted to reach out to you to, for coaching or to understand this more, where could they find you? So for coaching, you go straight to my website, onalabaron.com, and you can schedule time with me and uh, right through my website. And if, if you want to just, you know, comment or say, I heard you on this podcast, um, you can find me on any social media channel. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram is where I hang out the most and will likely see if you private message me or tag me in a post. And if you decide to buy the book, The Polygamous Daughter, and start reading it, if you would post a picture of that book on your social media and tag me, um, I would appreciate it because like I will tell you to do exactly what I'm doing right now. And that Mm -hmm. saying, if you read my book, post it on your uh, socials, tag me so that I know you're reading it. And then when you post it on your socials, you're reaching other people who are part of your circle that I have no connection to at all. So this is a way like me, you know, me being told authors have to sell their own book right now. What I am doing is the very thing that I'm going to coach you to do. Um, Me saying, Hey, do you have a podcast? Would you like to have me on your podcast? Even though it's motivated from a place of, I want to help people who are struggling right now with these events that are happening. I, I, I do believe I have a message and things to say. Um, but yes, it's my job to sell my book. And I believe in the message of my book enough that I don't have any shame attached with asking people to buy it because mm-hmm. of the work that I put into it. And there's nothing shameful about working for something and then asking for a monetary compensation for, mm-hmm. for that. Mm-hmm. You know? And so yeah. I teach people that that's that's, there's nothing wrong with it because a lot of people feel a little bit squirrely about, Hey, would you buy my book? You know, mm-hmm. like there's nothing wrong with, um, talking to people about buying something that you created. Like people that go to a job are exchanging their time for compensation for money. They're exchanging their time for money. So I spent time writing this book. So me saying, Hey, would you buy the book? is there's nothing wrong with being compensated for your time and me saying, hire me as your coach and Mm -hmm. here's my fee. There's nothing wrong with me saying I have this valuable thing that I can give you in exchange for money. And there's nothing, there's nothing unbiblical about that. Mm -hmm. And so this is the kind of thing that I do and help people understand and also realize that, um, using social media to reach an audience. And these are the kinds of things that you will be coached into doing. If you have 
a message for the world and you want to reach the world with that message. Fantastic. I just want to say thank you for your time and for your passion and for who you are. And uh, I really appreciate it. And I know we've been able to stay in touch and uh, we'll have to do dinner again, Lord willing, one day uh, after all this is over. <laughs> when you let us out of our houses. Yeah, let us out of the house, yeah. And we'll, we went to Chick-fil-A. I got Josh some Chick-fil-A a couple of days ago. Um, that was our first uh, eating out. That's the Lord's was- chicken right there. <laughs> I don't care what anybody says. <laughs> Everybody loves Chick-fil-A, huh? So uh, so we got some Chick-fil-A. And uh, so that was just a little bit, and that was interesting too. We haven't had, we haven't gone out to eat, you know, in over a month. So I was saying but, yesterday, like I haven't had Chick-fil-A in so long. Did you go out yesterday at Chick-fil-A? Um, no, 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 I hadn't. I was, oh. men- I was mentioning it to somebody yesterday that I, it's been so long. Oh, you're mentioning it. Okay. <laughs> Well, they're still open. So, well, thank you very much, Donna. And uh, I look forward to talking to you again. All right. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Thank you all for listening.